Welcome to Aletheia Church. Good morning. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, if you want to dismiss your kids now to Aletheia Junior, uh, the teachers will be in the back and be glad uh, to have them. Uh, if you haven't already gotten one uh, and would like one, uh, we have scripture journals for you. If this is your first time with us or you haven't grabbed one yet since you've been back for the year, uh, if you would like one, just raise your hand and we'll have somebody give one of those scripture journals uh, to you. That's our free gift to you. Um, we care about the Word of God here and want to make sure uh, that you have that. And so uh, take that, and that way you can keep notes and, and bring along. We just ask that if you come back in a future week or if you join one of our gospel communities, uh, that you would bring that with you uh, to that group. And so as many of you know, uh, if you've been around for any uh, length of time, um, I'm a really uh, avid sports fan. Um, football and, and soccer are probably my favorite, uh, but I'll watch it all. I mean, I'll like when the Olympics are on, I'll watch obscure sports that no one watches just to have something on TV. And, um, at age 11, um, I was playing soccer for my club team, uh, in Virginia. And, uh, we used to get this magazine called Eurosport. For those of you that are under the age of 30, magazines were things that they used to deliver in the mail. And with these magazines, what they were doing is they were trying to sell you products. So imagine Amazon, but in book form in front of you. And so one of the things they would do in these magazines is they would write articles or tell stories in there to kind of grab your attention to get you to open the magazine so that then you would see all of these things that you could buy. And then when you were me, beg your parents to buy them for you uh, because they might make you a better soccer player. And so I remember it was 1996. And in this particular uh, issue of Eurosport, there was a guy who was 17 years old uh, making his Premier League debut for Liverpool Football Club. His name was Michael Owen. And I was like 11 at the time, and I remember thinking as I was reading this, I was like, this is awesome. Like, he's not even adult yet, which I learned later that in the UK, you're considered an adult at 16, so that he actually was, and I was wrong. But he was like, he's, he's just a teenager. He's playing for a professional club. This is so cool. And I remember being so amazed that someone that young could make it on a professional team. Like, that day as I was reading that article, I decided to become a fan of Liverpool Football Club. Like, that was it. Had never watched a game, never knew anything about the history of the club, nothing. I'm actually wearing their jersey this morning. You can tell I'm a true fan because they are awful this year. I mean, they, they are really, really, really bad. And for years, as, as a supporter of Liverpool Football Club, they weren't very good. Like, other than like 2005, and they were terrible in the regular league that year, they won the European Cup, which is a big, big deal in, in the world of soccer. But other than that, they were not very good until 2015, they hired this German by the name of Jurgen Klopp, and it took him about two years and then the team just got really, really good until this year. They, they just got really, really good for a while. And he turned the club around. They won the league. They won, they won the Champions League. They appeared in the Champions League final three times. And it was during this run that I noticed a bunch of Liverpool jerseys just started appearing out of nowhere. I was like, hmm. Huh. 
you know, it's hard for me not to be a little cynical. Like, where were you when, like, we were just begging to win a game? Where, where were you? And where, where were you when times were hard? You don't really support the team. You don't really know everything Liverpool's been through in the last 20 years. You're not devoted enough. You're not truly a fan to wear that jersey. At least this is what was going on in my mind. As if I am the gatekeeper to that, right? So then... In 2019, I got the privilege of going over to England to visit my sister and brother-in-law. And while I was over there, I got tickets to go see them play live. And I went with my brother-in-law and we, we went over there. And, and before the game, we're, we're traveling around and we're going to a pub where I knew that there was going to be this one particular musical performer who like writes songs for the club because that's what... Uh, English, the English do, they write songs for their team and then sing the songs as they're, they're going along. They're m- much better at the fan atmosphere experience than Americans are, no offense to Americans. But so as I'm there, my American accent immediately betrayed me. Like they immediately, like this guy's not English. Like what, what's going on? And so immediately like the fans I'm sitting around who are predominantly English, most of them even from Liverpool itself, they're like, this guy, you're not really a fan. Like this, you're not really devoted. You haven't really suffered like we have and been committed to the team. And then as I got to talking to them and told them my story, and then I knew some of the songs I could actually sing with them, they like semi-adopted me. They're like, okay, maybe, maybe you're devoted enough and serious enough to where we could consider you a true fan. But there was still like this kind of like, nah, you're not, you're not good enough. You're not from Liverpool, or as they would say, you're not a scouser, and so you're not good enough to do it. And so here's, here's the reason why I share this story. See, what was clear about both my reaction to the new supporters and then the local Liverpool fans who this was their city, this was their club team, it was something that brought pride to them, was a, an example of true devotion for fandom or what you're sold out to. Like, is the devotion real enough to really be considered a fan? So for the English and for many that love football, they would say that support of a club is a lifelong and full devotion where you're there in the highs and the lows. And it matters to true supporters of those clubs, whether you're fully devoted or not and how you display that. And in our text this morning, Jesus is going to arrive at his father's house expecting devotion and worship to be going on towards the father. A true love, a true passion and worship for their creator. And he's going to, he's going to arrive in Jerusalem and notice that Israel is simply going through the motions. They're not truly committed to worship of God and devotion to him. And it's going to cause him to do something that actually in reality for many is super controversial. I love how Pastor Daniel put it. He said that when he preached this sermon at his old church back in Seattle years ago, he preached through all of chapter two and that he walked up on stage with a case of beer in one hand and a whip in another. And the reason he did that is he said because Jesus is displaying a high level of uncomfortability to people in chapter two. 
For those that are overly religious and can't imagine the Lord having a good time, him turning water uh, into wine at a wedding seems unbelievable for them. And at the same time, for those of us that might consider us less religious or not as into the intricacies of following the faith or considering and taking holiness seriously, we read the second half of chapter two this morning and we're confronted by a Jesus who cares deeply about devotion and worship of his father. See, so often we are excited to worship and follow after the Jesus that kind of tugs at our heartstrings or is the way that we want him to be. But Jesus usually doesn't leave us that option. He is both. As the scripture says, he's both lion and lamb. And the Jesus we get presented with in the second half of chapter two here this morning is one that is serious about true devotion and worship to his father. So I only have two points for us this morning, right? The first one is this. True devotion and worship is concerned first and foremost with God's glory. And then the second point is that true devotion and worship is centered around Jesus. So let's go look at this first point starting in in verse 13 of chapter two. True devotion and worship is concerned with God's glory. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple... He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written Zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem after, for some indeterminate amount of time after this wedding had taken place. And he, and he arrives at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the Passover is a celebratory holiday commemorating the night that the angel of death had passed over the homes of Jews who had placed blood of, of a lamb on their doorposts in the manner in which God had, had prescribed them to do. It was a major, major holiday. And what had happened in Egypt during that time is that the, the blood was put on the doorposts, but if there was no blood as prescribed by Moses, the firstborn was killed in all of the homes of the Egyptians. And so what this holiday commemorated for for the Jews was that they were then released to leave slavery and to leave Egypt and worship God as he had told them to. And immediately after the Passover celebration in Israel, they celebrated a seven-day feast of unleavened bread because what they had to do was take unleavened bread with them as they left Egypt as quickly as they possibly could. And so it was to commemorate what they had experienced as God's people. And so when Jesus arrives at the temple, and you need to remember that in Israel, the temple was the center and focal point of worship of God for Israelites. This was the place that God's people were supposed to be able to come together and focus in and center on worship of him. And Jesus arrives at the temple and he does not like what he has found. 
See, there's commerce and trade going on inside of the temple. There's auction, there's sheep, there's pigeons and money changers. And by the way, just, just so we're clear here, there's a reason why these things were going on inside of the temple. You know, Jerusalem, because the temple was the center of worship for the Jews, there would be many people that would be coming from far away that would be making pilgrimages to Jerusalem during this time. And one of the things that was prescribed for them to do when they would arrive there would be to give sacrifices and to pay the temple tax. And so you can imagine in a culture that doesn't have vans or trucks or trains or whatever else, that if you were to be bringing an animal to sacrifice and you were coming from 30, 40, 50, 60 miles away and trying to walk your way to Jerusalem, that it would be a lot easier to purchase an animal in Jerusalem than bring that animal with you to then sacrifice at the temple. But what had happened was for generations, this type of trade to be able to operate the temple and to be able to offer sacrifices if you had made, um, if you would come to Jerusalem to do a, 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 a time of worship and to be there to offer sacrifices to the Lord, is what had happened is there used to be markets set up on the Mount of Olives, which was across the Kidron Valley from the temple. So you could see it from the temple, but it wasn't actually being done at the temple site. And for some reason, by the time we get to Jesus' day and age, the money changers and the animal sellers have just moved themselves into the temple. Now, they weren't actually inside the temple itself. If you know anything about the temple, it kind of had three parts to it. You had the innermost part, which was called the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go and he could only go once a year to offer atonement for Israel. Then the next portion was the holy place where only Jews were allowed to go into and worship. And then you had a place outside of that place called the court of the Gentiles, which is where anyone that wanted to come and worship God who was not ethnically Jewish could still come offer sacrifices and worship God. And these money changers and the salespeople were set up in the court of the Gentiles. Now, The money changers, the reason they're there is there was this temple tax that needed to happen. And people from all over the Roman Empire would come in during these festivals and they would bring various different types of currency and coins. So money changers actually provided an important service to exchange currency so the temple tax could be paid because the temple tax had to be in pure silver. And oftentimes the currency of of other parts of Rome didn't have a high enough purity of silver to be able to properly pay the tax. So the money changers would allow you to come exchange your currency for a fee so that you could pay the temple tax and the proper currency and do what you were supposed to do. So here you have Jesus after this awesome miracle where he's changed water into wine and he's displayed something very, very different about the heart of God and celebrating and enjoying marriage and being there and performing his first sign. He arrives with his disciples to celebrate his father's victory over Egypt and the deliverance of God's people at the temple. And instead he finds a scene that looks more like Alachua County's fair. And you may be thinking like, 
why is this such a big deal? I mean, you just got done telling us, Kevin, that this was an important thing that they needed to be able to do, that not everyone had the proper animal sacrifices or didn't have the proper currency. Why is this such a big deal? And the reason why it's such a big deal is, is for three reasons. Number one is this. It's incredibly disruptive. Imagine trying to come to worship You've, you've traveled hundreds of miles to come to Jerusalem to honor and worship God, to pray and sacrifice to him. And instead you're disrupted by the noises and smell of animals and haggling merchants. How many of you guys have ever spent time on a farm? Yeah, about a third of you. Could you imagine that smell while trying to be here this morning? It's not great. Right? And farmers are used to that because it's what they do. But it's not something you're expecting when you go into God's temple to worship him and honor him. This created a distracted worship environment for God's people. And it brought attention and awe away from him. And it angers Jesus because God's people are there to worship him and instead are being disrupted by the wickedness of commerce and trade by the people there. Now, not only is it disruptive and distracting, but it's also exploitative. See, likely these merchants were taking advantage of the travelers. They were likely overcharging for the animals even the pigeons that were being sold, God had allowance for those who were poor. And so he allowed them to sacrifice pigeons because they couldn't afford you know, the oxen or the sheep for the sacrifice. But they often overcharging for these animals and taking advantage of the poor, which is something that God does not tolerate. And the money changers, if you've ever traveled internationally, you know currency exchange is one of the biggest scams in the world. It's like you look up the currency exchange rate and you're like, oh my gosh, okay, I can go to Colombia and every dollar is worth like $9 billion in Colombia. And then you give that money to the exchange person and you get back like five Colombian pesos. And you're like, what? What is going on? Right? Because money changers tend to take a fee or a percentage from whatever you give. And oftentimes they took a higher cut than what was going on. And so here you have Jesus who knows this is the focal point of worship where God's people are supposed to come together, sold out to the glory of God and making much of their creator. And they're being disrupted by trade. They're being exploited by wicked merchants. And then the last thing is this, what is going on here is one of the most uncompassionate and unloving things I think I've ever seen in scripture. What would this have communicated to Gentiles who were coming to the temple to worship God? I mean, can you imagine? You have people who maybe grew up in a, in a different culture, under a different religion, and they've converted to Judaism. They've begun to follow 
the true God. Yahweh has revealed himself to them and they travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles to come to the temple to finally worship God at his temple, the place where he would manifest his glory to Israel. And they arrive there. And in the only place that they are allowed to worship, they enter into the temple and they're in the court of the Gentiles and they can't even worship God in spirit and in truth and in and in all honesty, just with a reflective heart, because they're listening to the bleeding of sheep and the and the bang of goats and the pigeons are pooping everywhere. And there's people haggling over how much money they're going to do for the, for the currency exchange. They can't worship God. And God and his word in the Old Testament had been abundantly clear to Jews that they were to be welcoming to the outsider, to be inviting to the sojourner who was in their land. And what is being done, not just in Israel, but in the very house of God, where the presence and glory of God was to dwell, was to be pushing those who had come to worship him away. Jesus' reaction to all this is anger. How could could you do this in my father's house? You know, wickedness runs amok among our people. And in the one place, one building where we should be disconnected from the world and instead come in and worship our creator in spirit and in truth and the way that he's asked us, you have turned it into a house of merchants. How dare you? So it says it takes a whip of cords and he drives them out and he flips the money changers. And of course, as a kid hearing this story, I always thought Jesus was actually whipping the people. Like, man, Jesus is wild. He was using that to force out the animals, guys. He wasn't whipping people. He'd been arrested on the spot in Jerusalem if he had. Now, part of me is like, maybe those people deserved it. I don't know, right? But he's using the cord to to drive out the animals as he whips them out and sends them out, right? And then just to make his point clear, he goes over to the money changers, he takes their coins and he just throws it everywhere and flips their tables over. And what's being communicated here? What Jesus is communicating to us is God cares about how we worship. It matters. Guys, when we gather together on Sunday morning, when we gather as the people of God, we're not just called to do that, to go through the motions. What we're doing here this morning, guys, is a holy event. We have seven other days of the week to be distracted, pulled in 40,000 different directions to to live our lives, 
sometimes in the way that we see fit. But when we gather as the people of God for corporate worship, we are saying and declaring the glory of our God matters more than what we want. And we are gonna worship him in spirit and in truth as he has asked us to. See, what Jesus is saying is that there needs to be a true and genuine devotion and worship of God. Otherwise, we're just going through the motions and it's for naught. His, John quotes from Psalm 69 verse 9 here, where he says that they remembered that zeal for your house will consume me. And what John's reminding us as his readers there, as he's saying, hey, hey, the temple was the focal point of the relationship between God and man. They were supposed to be there to worship. When we gather here on Sunday mornings, we are here to worship God. And Jesus's zeal for his father and the worship of his father drives him to force out the commerce that is going on inside the temple. This should cause all of us to just pause for a minute, to reflect, to look inward and say, if true worship matters to God's son, am I taking worship as seriously? Am I here with the proper posture to honor the glory of God as his son or daughter? Am I gathering here this morning because it's routine and I live in the South and that's what we do. We, we go to church on Sunday morning. That's what we're supposed to do. If grandma heard, she would be mad. Or am I here because God is worthy? And I'm here to make much of him. You know, guys, I think sometimes and I've heard this, especially from those that I probably would not label themselves Christians, but they'll read this passage and they'll see like, see, Jesus is a little crazy. He's not as great as you make him out to be. Look how rude he is. Look how angry he is. He can't control his emotions. Anger for the right things is not sin. Being corrected for doing the wrong thing is loving, not hateful. Amen. Jesus is doing one of the most loving things he could possibly do in this situation. He's restoring God's temple to how it's supposed to be. This is why if we get corrected or pointed back in a direction that points us towards God, we should rejoice that someone loved us enough to point us to true devotion and worship of God. One of the most important things we can do if we wanna capture a heart of worship that is devoted and concerned with God's glory is to fight against consumerism and self-indulgence and instead fight for zeal for God as he's revealed himself to us. To fight, to honor and glorify God 
And instead of creating an environments that push people away, like the Israelites were doing here in the first century by setting up a market in the court of the Gentiles, instead, we welcome others in the same way that God welcomed us in. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse seven. I shared this at the member meeting last week. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Church, we are called to be an inviting people and not just with a simple hello or how are you. No, an invitation into community and family and an invitation to reveal to those who might not yet know who God is, who their creator is and what he has done for them in Christ. I always get so heartbroken when I hear stories of people and I meet a lot of people on the campus when I do evangelism or whatever else and I I hear their church background and most people I meet don't really have a problem with Jesus. They have a problem with Jesus's people. Because the same way that the Jews had turned the court of the Gentiles into a 4-H club meeting, we so often make worship and church about us, steeped in our own traditions and the way we want to do things, thereby pushing away the very people that God is calling and drawing to himself. So Jesus, right, calls us to true devotion and worship that is concerned with God's glory. And if we're not, we repent and change and come in line with God and his word. And so Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. And the remainder of our time is he's gonna show us that true devotion and worship is centered around him moving forward. Look at verse 18 with me of John chapter two. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So the Jews, like they normally do, right? They respond to this cleansing, not with sackcloth and ashes of repentance, but instead they want to know what authority Jesus has to do everything they just did, which in fairness, he did just drive out the entire commerce of the temple. So they come to him and they're like, what sign do you show us for doing these things? To put it another way, what gives you the right to do what you've just done? Jews love to demand proof of authority to do things. They love it. It's one of their favorite things. And just just so we're clear, we are not any different than Jewish culture. Right? We do the exact same thing. It just looks differently right now. It might be, hey, do you have the right credentials? Do you have the right degree? 
How dare you speak on that subject if you're not a parent? You know, whatever it may be, we, lo- we love to create barriers that people can't have opinions or do things or have authority on things. But here's the deal. No matter what sign Jesus would have done, it would not have been enough for them. It would have never have been enough because they already knew what they wanted to do. And so Jesus, as he often does, he calls them out in two ways, right? The first one is he actually calls their bluff. And here's what I mean by that, right? He's going to use an illustration and it's going to have two separate meanings to it. The first one is this, destroy the temple and I will raise it in three days, right? He's basically calling them out saying, you care about this place so much? I'll show you how much I care about it. You destroy this place and I'll raise it back up again in three days, right? He knows they're not going to destroy the temple. He knows that they know at least intellectually that this place is the focal point of worship of God's people. They're not going to destroy that place. They'd worked 46 years to build it. So he's using this as an illustration to say to them, one, I have the authority. I could raise this place back up in three days, but you claim to love this place so much and to care about what I just did. Why don't you have the same zeal for it then that I do? You don't really care. You're over here calling me out. You should have been the one driving all of this out. You should have been the one demanding this. You don't really care. You're faking it. This is all a show for you. And this ends up, by the way, as Jesus shares this line with this, this ends up being used as evidence in his trial later. If you go over to Mark chapter 14, as they're at the council throwing out various lies about him, one of them says this, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. By the way, not what he said. but they use it against him. And Jesus is saying, you guys don't really care about this place. You're here acting like you do. Call my bluff. Destroy this place. I'll raise it back up again. Three days. Now, not only is he referring to the physical temple that is right there in front of them as he calls them out on their false piety, but he also is referring to his own body and giving a foreshadow to the resurrection. See, because the Jews don't get Jesus's response. It took, they're like, it took 46 years to build this temple. What you say is impossible. And they missed what Jesus is actually trying to say to them. I am the temple now. I am the true temple. Jesus is teaching not explicitly, but he's revealing to them that through the incarnation, He is now the focal point of meeting and worshiping the Father, right? Remember what John had said in John chapter one? Look at verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his what? Glory. Glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, John is saying to us, hey, once Jesus showed up, we didn't need the temple anymore because the glory of God had been put in a person, Jesus. And then when you go over to John chapter 14, look at what John shares with us there. Starting in verse 10, he says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. See, for generations, God's people had gathered at buildings to worship the Father. They had gathered at the tabernacle and then at the temple. And then with the destruction of the temple and the exile, they waited for the temple to be rebuilt. And now the second temple was there. And this was the place, the focal point of worship of God. And Jesus is announcing that with the advent of the incarnation and his arrival, that worship of the Father is no longer about going to a specific place, but it's through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That at the temple, sacrifices were offered to appease God's wrath, but in Jesus, he is our sacrifice for God's wrath. That at the temple, worship happened to God, but in Jesus, worship can happen anywhere. That at the temple, they would pray to God so that he might hear them, but that in Jesus, he is praying and interceding for us even when we aren't praying. Church, oh, how God longs for Israel and for us to see and understand that true worship and devotion only come through genuine belief and faith in Jesus. There is no other way. And if you look at verse 23, you're gonna get a snapshot of that because it says this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Some of them saw what Jesus was doing and even believed, but you're gonna realize that they don't fully get it because look at this next part. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. See, what John is saying is that many people believe, but they still don't fully get it. They don't fully get the magnitude of what Jesus was saying here. Even his disciples didn't get it until after the resurrection. And therefore Jesus did not entrust himself to men, but instead to the Father's will. And that will led him to the cross. To die for your sins and for mine. To raise to life again, declaring victory over sin and death. And for those of us who are in Christ, to give us new life, a life of true devotion and worship to God. You know, I said in my very first sermon that John chapter 20 verses 30 through 31, that John shares with, with us the entire purpose for recording this gospel account. It says this, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why this gospel was written. That you would believe. Believe Jesus, the true temple of God. The one who made a way when there was no way. And through him offers us access to worship God anywhere and everywhere. Because as scripture says, we are now holy temples of the Holy Spirit unto God. And that not only would we believe, but that we would have life in his name. And here's what John means by that, guys. To have life in his name means that we participate in worship and devotion of God to his glory, not our own. That we would examine our lives for inconsistencies and false worship. And that by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, we would repent and cleanse the temple of our hearts. Daily and hourly for the glory of God so that we might worship him with full devotion. Jesus' work in cleansing the temple is an invitation. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, Jesus cleansed the temple to reveal to us that worship is no longer centered in a place, but it's centered through a person and it's centered through the work of Jesus. And you are called today to place your trust in him, to turn from worship of self and instead to place it in the work of Jesus Christ. Believer, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to truly examine yourself, invited to examine and by faith and repentance cleanse that which might not be true devotion and worship of him. And then to walk forward in full devotion and worship of God because he is worthy.